Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is VP of Operations, Albert Chow. On today's episode, I sit down with Adam Enbar, CEO and co-founder of Flatiron School. Flatiron School is paving the way for the future of education through their online and in-person schools. Unlike a traditional university, Flatiron School provides focused curriculums on subjects such as software engineering, data science, UX and UI design, cybersecurity analytics, and many others. Keep listening to find out how they do it and why they have a 97% employment rate for graduates. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Welcome, everyone. Another episode today of Mission Daily. Today, we have a special guest for us, Adam Enbar, CEO of Flatiron School. Now, Adam, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Tell everyone what is Flatiron School. So we are a, uh, we're a school, just like it sounds. Uh, we provide technical training uh, to place people into uh, high paying jobs in technology careers. Um, our core disciplines are software engineering, data science, design, and cybersecurity. Uh, we have campuses around the United States and in London and an online program that serves students in uh, over 30 countries. And uh, I'd, I'd say what makes us unique is that we're uh, hyper-focused on getting people great jobs. So if you kind of follow through our career services commitment and aren't employed within six months of graduating, you're eligible for a full refund. We really kind of stand behind uh, our students and, and our promise. Now, you guys, what's unique about Flatiron is you really put your money where your mouth is. Uh, with that guarantee. And we got some stats on Flatiron, 97% employment rate across your 11, now 11 in-person campuses around the world. What is it about Flatiron that you think that leads to such success? And why is that number, you know, so materially different from like a traditional education? You know, that's a, that's a big question. I think, first of all, uh, you got to take a big step back and uh, ask yourself what your you know, why you think that should even be a surprise. You know, if you, if you go into Best Buy and buy an iPhone and it didn't work, you would, you'd be pissed, right? <laughs> You're like, why, what, what is this? Why, like, you know, I'm getting a refund. You'd walk right back in. And yeah, with education, you know, we walk out of school with these insanely expensive degrees that do nothing for us and are like, well, I guess it's my fault. I must've done something wrong, Right. I think 97% should be the standard. Like it, it shouldn't be impressive. It should be the current state of affairs. So there's all kinds of stuff going on there. I think, you know, obviously what we do is really straightforward, right? There are a lot of different forms higher education can take. Uh, we're not promising people a very broad liberal arts education or anything like that. We are focused on giving you the skills necessary to start a career and be successful in that career within very specific areas. And uh, that comes down to just a few very specific ingredients. Number one is the students. We have a very, very deliberate admissions process where uh, we are looking for people who are highly motivated, who understand why they want to learn this particular discipline and why they want to launch a career. Uh, and people who are going to be a fit within the class that we're building. The second thing is the experience itself. We really strongly believe in great teachers. We think teachers can literally perform miracles. <laughs> you know, they, they just, you put together, you put somebody in a room with a great teacher and they will transform them into a different person with different skills. <laughs> um, and so we invest a lot in having really great teachers that are focused on teaching, not just doing. 
And then we spend a lot, a lot, a lot of energy on the career services process. I don't know about you, but I, I, I couldn't tell you where the career services office was in my college. I have no um, idea. Yeah. We invest really heavily in that. We really take uh, outcomes really seriously and put a lot of energy behind making sure students find the right opportunity for themselves. You know, I love that. And I want to walk back a little bit because you yourself went to some very, you know, prestigious schools, right? You went to Cornell undergrad, eventually you went to Harvard. Like, you're a smart, you're a smart guy. I'll give myself a little credit. I went to University of Virginia and I went to Emory. So both of us have similar experiences, but I'd like to hear from you. Was there something that you felt maybe unsatisfying about it? Like what brought you to education? Because by all accounts, you went to great schools, you got great uh, opportunities. It looked like, you know, prior to even starting Flatiron, you were, you had, I would say, you know, the type of career people would say, Hey, I want to go to school for, what was that missing piece or what was just like, I guess, bugging you that said, Hey, let's, let's, let's go attack this. First of all, I don't know how much of where I went to school represents the fact that I'm smart versus the fact that I'm really good at applying for stuff. Um, <laughs> those are totally different skills. We'll give you credit for being smart. No, you don't need to. I mean, applying for stuff is, is a skill in and of itself. And, you know, there's a big conversation to be had around that, especially when we you look at like our low-income students who are just amazing and brilliant and that, you know, they just, nobody ever taught them how to apply for stuff, right? So applying for school, applying for jobs. But um, yeah, I grew up, um, you know, my, my parents were both immigrants from Morocco and uh, like many immigrant families, they were obsessed with education. Everything we did was about education. You know, there were periods in my life where, you know, my family didn't have any money and we were living in you know, crowded uh, apartments or even motel rooms at times. But the, the only thing they optimized for is education. What school are you going to go to? What kind of education are you going to get? So it was a big force in my life. And uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And, it, you know, we really followed that American ideal of just, go to college, get a degree, take on as much debt as necessary <laughs> and study what you're passionate about. But once you have that degree, that's the golden ticket. So uh, I got into some pretty good schools. You know, I went to Cornell, and, um, but I studied policy analysis. I, I didn't know what you do with that. Um, and so I ended up starting a real estate company out of that. And, it, you know, it, I, I did well as an entrepreneur, but I, I thought, you know what? I don't really know how to run a company. I'm going to go to business school. Maybe that's where I'll learn how to run a business. And the same thing happened. I uh, learned a lot about the world and met a lot of interesting people and networked and all that stuff. But I left business school without a single hard skill. So while all my friends went off and took, you know, private equity and hedge fund and consulting jobs, I took an entry-level sales job at a startup because I said, I got to learn something real. <laughs> and I'm like, so I'm going to learn how to sell. So that was HubSpot. That ended up going public. But throughout all of that, I stayed close to education. I taught first grade in Brooklyn uh, while I was in college. I taught entrepreneurship at a, at a prison in Boston after I graduated from school for a while. Uh, I taught marketing. So I've, I've always been close to it. And after leaving HubSpot, I was working in venture capital and uh, looking to invest in higher education and couldn't really find anything that I got really excited about. And that's when I met my co-founder who was just teaching people how to code and getting them jobs. And I uh, actually at the time tried to convince him to start a company so I could invest in it because that was my job. And he thought I was crazy. And I said, well, what if I quit my job and we do it together? And, and uh, here we are. So that's some conviction right there. I mean, you got, you're working at a venture cap firm, you're going to be an investor and then you yourself dive in. Did you feel like your co-founder had a special methodology of teaching or was the subject matter just so in demand that it just made sense? So, you know, I had a macro perspective, all of the things made sense, right? You know, we we're just coming out of the recession, there's a huge skills gap. So 
teaching people stuff that gets them a job makes sense. My co-founder is an amazing teacher, Avi. He's one of the best teachers I've ever met. And so that that was reassuring. But, you know, if I'm being totally honest, no, none of this. Was, <laughs> like, it was terrifying the entire way through. You know, to be honest, even now, and we were just talking, we had a company all hands last week. And even now, it's still every time somebody gets a job, there's like a little, little shred of me that's like, wow, this really works. <laughs> this is crazy. And the only reason that's there, the only reason it's surprising that somebody can get, you know, come here and spend four months learning how to code or learning data science and then go off and get a great job is because we're, we have it drilled into, drilled into our brains that this should take four years and it should cost $200,000. And there's no reason for that, right? That old system is so ingrained in us that even today, whenever I think about it, I'm like, wow, I cannot believe, like the fact that this works means that our, the rest of the system is just so broken, you know? Well, I think about what you're saying right there. Um, so I, I wanted to share with you a little bit of my personal experience. So at another tech company I worked at, we would hire people similar to, they didn't go to Flatiron, but it was like a similar concept where it was a school that taught coding. And we were surprised with the results. And what was surprising also was when, uh, so now I'm like, I'll age myself. I was like 35, 36 years old at the time. So it was about four years ago. What was surprising to me is we would, in casual conversation with our recent new hires, we would talk about, you know, were these available at university or things like that? Like, how come, you know, how come you didn't, because a couple of them went to school first and then left and then decided to go to, you know, like a flat iron school program. And they were talking about how these programs, uh, or I guess the edu- the curriculum that you teach at Flatiron, it's, it's actually not available at their university. So it wasn't even really an option. Like they were paying all this money to go to school that didn't even have like, let's say, uh, you know, modern requirement for development, right? Like they didn't have it. And so I, I was kind of just taken aback. And just that's when I started really thinking about how antiquated curriculums, I guess, are from schools to, to, to your point. So when you, when you guys think about that, explain to us why, how is it able to be squeezed into like a four month period where, like you said, the traditional education system wants you to believe it's going to take you four years minimum. Yeah. So uh, look, I don't want to totally rag on colleges, right? There's a yeah. lot that, that a, you know, quote unquote, higher education. Uh, there's a lot that that's supposed to provide to you other than just preparation for your first job, right? So we're, we're taking the easy route out here. We're just getting ready, getting you ready for your first job. Um, my problem with higher education is not that it does all that other stuff. It's that somewhere in those four years, it should also get you ready for your first job. Right. <laughs> um, right. Like if it's going to take, yes, there's all, okay, you're, you're creating better citizens. You're helping people with critical thinking. Awesome. That stuff is great. But somewhere in there, just carve out a few months to get people ready so they can get a job. You know, in terms of, of why it works and how we think about curriculum and stuff. So first of all, if you actually just, you know, you take something like our software engineering program, let's say you wanted to compare it to a computer science degree. So first of all, if you actually just add up the total number of hours you would spend in a computer science program, actually taking computer science classes, it's less over four years. It's less hours than the number of hours you spend writing code at Flatiron School in four months. So your total classroom instruction time is actually less across a four-year traditional education program than compared to Flatiron. Your total classroom instruction in computer science, gotcha. right? Because when you go to college, and that's not just classroom, that includes the hours, you know, when you, it's credit hours. So like the hours you spend outside of class and mm-hmm. homework and all that stuff. Because, you know, when you go to college, you also have to take a foreign language and you also have to take a science and you also have to do this other thing. And again, there's good reason to all of that. I don't want to debate that. But 
we spend more hours writing code in the four months here than you're required to spend writing code in a four-year computer science degree, right? So that's the first thing. Uh, the hours are actually, it, it's more here. The second thing is that, you know, if you look at education theory, uh, we, there is something called the switching cost, right? The worst possible way to learn something is to spend 40 minutes learning it and then stop and then learn something else for 40 minutes and then stop and learn something else for 40 minutes, then come back to the first thing. You don't get in, you're not able to get into a state of flow. There's a massive efficiency to what we do in terms of just focusing on one thing all day, every day, day in and day out that we act, we can, we do more in those hours than you can do if you have all of those breaks in between, right? So that's the second thing. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing is that, yeah, it's entirely different curriculum, right? So, you know, the, the analogy I, I use often is, you know, think about wanting to go out and be a finance, be in the finance industry, right? A lot of people that do that learn economics. They major in economics, right? Now, econ is a great major if you want to go into finance. It's theoretical. It teaches you how to think about things, you know, supply and demand and all that stuff. But it doesn't teach you how to, you know, build a cash flow model. It doesn't teach you how to think about how much a company is worth or how to negotiate a, a, a contract or, or take something public. It's economics. It's theory, right? It's a, it's a liberal art. That is the equivalent of what computer science is to writing code, right? There's a lot of value to it, but it's not what you're going to do on the job every day. Not even close. That's what we teach you, right? We teach you the equivalent of how to build a valuation model, right? We, build you, we teach you how to actually do the job. Now, again, that, that doesn't mean computer science is useless. Of course not. But what you learn there is really only necessary for a tiny, tiny, tiny percent of the jobs out there, right? So if you want to rewrite search algorithms at Google, if you want to build 3D image rendering software for Pixar, if you're working on, you know, self-driving car technology, yeah, you probably need some computer science, maybe even a PhD in math, right? That being said, the vast majority of jobs out there, the vast majority of companies that have been built in the past 10 years, the vast majority of innovation hasn't come from that kind of work. It's actually come from taking existing technology and applying it to problems in new and creative ways, right? So you look at companies like Airbnb and eBay and Uber and all these, you know, none of them are really inventing anything, right? The power in what they've done is not, you know, come up with some new algorithm. The power in what, they, in what they've done is in the fact that they've taken technology and used it to solve problems for people in a creative way. And so arguably, the most important skills for people who want to innovate and for people who want to build things that are actually going to touch people is creativity and em empathy, right? Those are the things you need to have. And then you use those with some basic technology skills to solve a problem. And so that, that's what we're teaching. And that's what most of our students are interested in, right? They're, they're, they come to us because they have this desire to create, this desire to build things that will actually impact people. And, um, the, the tools you need to do that are much more practical. It's, I have this idea. I, I understand this problem. I can solve something for somebody. I can help somebody. I just need the skills, the technical skills to be able to implement that. And that, that's what we provide. No, that's amazing. How many, so how many students will flat iron graduate this calendar year, 2019? A few thousand. A few thousand. And how yeah, many? Including all of our campuses and online. 
That's fantastic. Now, how many did you have when you first started? Our first class of 19 students. <laughs> 19 students. Take me back to that day. I, mean, I feel like 19 is pretty good. <laughs> when, you, <laughs> when you had that first class, you and Avi had your first class and your first wave and 19 yep. people signed up. I mean, that seems pretty good. I don't it's know. What were you crazy. thinking at the time? <laughs> I thought, what are these people thinking? Um, I still, I still, whenever I, you know, I know every single person in our first probably four or five classes and, but especially the first two, because the first two classes enrolled before we had any outcomes, I still don't get what they were thinking. But, uh, even, you know, if you go back to our very first class, we actually had 140 something applicants for that class. I mean, I wrote a bunch of blog posts and, you know, meetups and all that stuff. And somehow we, we generated 140 applicants. We had a very, very little space. And so we only had space for like 19 or 20 students. And the way we thought about the admissions process was along two axes. One is that this stuff is really hard, right? And, and at the time, there weren't coding boot camps. I mean, Code Academy was just starting to become a thing. But there were a lot of people that thought they wanted to learn how to code because it was cool or because they thought they were going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And we were looking for people who genuinely knew why they wanted to do it, right? They had some real reason, like, you know, the combination of analytical thinking and creativity, maybe they mess around with it online and, and, but couldn't motivate to do it on themselves. Like we were really looking for, I mean, we called it passion, right? Why, why do you know that you want to do this? And then the other thing is, you know, for us, we really, from day one, knew that this was not interesting to us if it was just going to be about career changers. That like, sure, you know, if we take, you know, people that worked in consulting and banking and whatever that, you know, had good, de- good degrees and good careers and just wanted to switch over, you know, laterally into coding, we actually knew that we could make them successful. That wasn't hard. And that, that might be a fine business, but for us, we, we, we knew from day one that it was only interesting if we can actually create access, uh, if we can broaden the pool of people that can enter into this kind of a career. Uh, and so from day one, we were really, really deliberate about admitting a very, very diverse class in terms of background. So our first class had, you know, we had some bankers and lawyers and people with good degrees, but we also had a construction worker and an amateur boxer. We had a marketer and administrative assistant. We had a major league baseball scout, super kind of all over the map. And uh, again, that was for two reasons. One, because we wanted to prove that you can really provide this type of opportunity to a wide range of people. Uh, And then two is actually going back to what we were just talking about, that we thought, okay, you know, at a base level, everybody here is going to learn how to code. So that's fine. How do we level up? How do we not just make it, make them good coders, but great? And we realized that, you know, getting from good to great was not going to be about solving the algorithm a little bit faster, implementing some concept a little bit more efficiently. That'll come with time and experience. So the only real lever we have to take them from good to great is to teach them how to infuse creativity into technology. And the best way we could do that was by bringing together different perspectives, bringing together a diverse set of people. And so that's how we thought about our first class. And that's how we've tried to think about every class going forward is how do we bring together a diverse group of people that are going to not only learn the baseline skills necessary to get a job, but start to lay a foundation for using these skills in a creative and empathetic way because they've learned how to do it with people who have different perspectives from them. 
I want to go back to that part you talked about in the beginning about passion, right? Because so I admittedly, I've taken some computer science classes back in college again, aging myself. This is back at circa now, 2000, uh, 1999. But I do remember it being quite hard, like hard enough to the point where I was like, I'm not interested in this <laughs> because yeah. you kind of hit the nail on the head, right? Because if you're doing it just for the money, the problem with coding is it's just hard enough that it's like the money might not be worth it because you could probably, you know, you can earn money doing a lot of different things. So passion is an interesting thing because it's actually quite soft, right? It's very hard to test for. So how are you, or how did you guys develop tests to test for this characteristic from the beginning? Because you said you were looking for it even in your first class. Uh, I'm sure you've gotten better at, at it now, but how does one test for passion? It's hard and uh, we've evolved uh, the way we, we assess that over time, but you look for signals, right? So one of the big signals is just commitment. How committed are you to this? So for example, there's, there was a guy who applied to our second ever class. Uh, his name was Mendel. He's still working at the same place. Um, he grew up in, in a Hasidic neighborhood. And so he went to a very kind of a religious high school and then never went to college and didn't have real formal secular education. And he, when I interviewed him, he seemed to be really excited about this, but he clearly didn't have a ton of exposure. He was obviously very smart, but he was struggling with some basic concepts, you know, in terms of variables and like, you know, and uh, I, I realized that he never really had a, taken a real algebra class. Here's a link to algebra on Khan Academy. If you finish this and you learn it, you can get into the class. Well, I'll let you into the class. And to me, that wasn't just about saying like, oh, okay, let me test your aptitude to be able to learn algebra, but are you going to push through and fight through and learn this, right? And uh, if you can, great, we want you. Because um, if you're committed, we, we, we're yet to find somebody that's committed to this that can't be successful. You know, if you asked 500 years ago, if you asked the average person who might have the capacity to learn how to read and write, the answers you'd get are sub 50% of the population, right? Reading and writing, that's for the clergy and that's for the aristocracy. That's not for farmers. Farmers can't learn how to read, right? But today, obviously, we think that's insane. But if I walked around asking the exact same question about coding or nuclear physics or, you know, organic chemistry, who, how, what percent of the population has the capacity to understand this? We'd give some more answers. I think we, we continually underestimate what people are capable of. And, um, you know, yeah, maybe your class was hard, but maybe you just didn't have a great teacher. So uh, I think we deeply believe that anybody can learn this stuff. Uh, it's really about democratizing access, right? Really creating more opportunity and connecting people with great teachers that know how to inspire people and know how to connect them to the material. Now, part of what you're doing that I can read about, about democratizing access is also changing the way, I guess, school is paid for. Right. Um, I think we've read, we've all read as a population, we've read about how student debt is getting to a certain number. It's extraordinarily high. It can never be forgiven. You have these people that were kind of duped, I think, into taking, going to schools that we or majoring in things that they didn't somehow plan out how they were going to repay their student loans. So student loan yeah. debt forgiveness is in the news a lot, but Flatiron goes about it in a, in a different way. Now I want to know is, were curious about first is did you come up with these methods because you knew that you wanted to democratize education first or was it another reason like uh, maybe people you just knew people couldn't pay for it in a traditional method if you were just going to charge a big lump up front yeah it's a little bit of both look i'm not the student debt is a giant problem 
but it's not a it's not a problem because it's an inherently bad thing, right? Wouldn't it be great if all education was free? Sure, but it's not, right? And we need to spend money on teachers and buildings and fund research and all that stuff. And that's the system we have in America. And within that system, you know, I'm actually kind of pretty inspired by the idea that in our country, you know, you can't get a guaranteed loan to buy a house or start a small business or get a car. We don't even give you healthcare, right? But the one thing that we are willing to give every citizen of this country, essentially a blank check for is education. That's how much we believe in education as a country that anybody can better themselves through education. So, so that's a pretty inspiring thing. Now, obviously, it has not been executed particularly well for a bunch of reasons, right? <laughs> so without getting into that, I'll say that I think, you know, I think ultimately we believe as a, as a society that people can better themselves through education, and that's a thing worth investing in. What we realized is that a lot of people started asking me uh, whether we were going to pursue getting accredited, like should Flatirons will become university. And that's just paperwork, right? We can go down that path. And I'm not going to cross that off the list indefinitely, but I started thinking about what the value of being a university is. What, what is the value in being accredited? And there's really only two as far as I can see. One is that we get to grant people degrees, which I guess still matter to a lot of people, although increasingly less in our industry in things like coding and data science, right? So that's one thing, but doesn't seem that valuable. And then the other thing was access to student loans. And I realized that we can solve that problem without becoming accredited, without going through the federal government, just by providing students with access to financing mechanisms that would enable them to afford this. So our goal is, while, while it might not be easy to get into Flatiron School, if you do the work and you kind of prepare for the process and you're admitted, accepted, we want to make it easier for you to attend. And so there are a lot of ways to fund your education. You know, the one that's getting the most recently is income share agreements, where essentially you can enroll and pay little to nothing up front and then just pay us back a, a percent of your income after you get a job. And so our incentives are fully aligned with the students. It's just another great way to create access. Right? Yeah. And one of the things I'm versed in, so as a business operator, and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, is the you know the importance of cash flow. So you have, you have so your, your business Super noble. I love everything you guys are doing, but there is, there's a part of me that wonders about the cash flow of operations. So here you have a business, right? If, an, if a student takes an income share agreement, you are effectively deferring cash or a portion of cash. Yep. Right? A yep. substantial portion. So yep. tell me about how you guys operate the business with that principle in mind. Um, I, I feel like, I mean, it just puts more onus on you guys to do a great job because otherwise you won't get paid. But, <laughs> but I'd like to hear your perspective of how you manage that, that, that aspect of that, bit, of that part of the business. Income share agreements are brand new. And so we're trying to approach them very carefully. We have, I think, one of the most generous income share agreements in the industry in terms of our terms and flexibility for students. Like we charge the smallest percent of somebody's salary and give people a really long time to pay back. And so we have to manage that carefully from a cash perspective. A big chunk of our income share agreements are essentially self-funded. They're on our balance sheet. We, ad we admit students, we teach them, and we just know that they'll pay us back over time and we have a reasonable high degree of certainty because we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, in some cases, we've partnered with third-party uh, providers that can help fund those income share agreements. Uh, so that's something we're testing out a bit. And so, you know, it just depends on how quickly we want to grow. And it's just something to be managed like anything else. 
but ultimately, you know, my, my view at, at the highest level is that, you know, you build a good business by providing people with value, right? <laughs> and so it's like, why, why are iPhones more expensive than, than Androids? Well, because for some reason, people are willing to pay more for an iPhone because they're, it makes them a little happier. For yeah. so, it doesn't matter why, right? So the iPhone delivers more value. And so Apple can capture a bigger piece of that value, right? So we're delivering value to people, right? We're about to release a, a new jobs report and um, uh, the, st- the stats are with the auditors. So we actually, I think we're the only school that gets audited uh, reports for every single student who's ever been to Flatiron School. Well, that's cool. We have CPAs sign off on all of our, our graduation rates and, and uh, salaries and all that stuff. You build a big business by driving value right? for people. The average increase in salary for our students is mind-blowing. So, for example, we have a campus, we have a program called Access Labs, where the entire program is only for students who make under 35K a year. And they come in and don't pay anything up front, not even a deposit. And they, their whole uh, tuition is based on an income share agreement. On average, students out of that program more than double their salary, right? That's and that's an, annual, that's an annual salary. So the return on investment there is insane. You know, as long as we can continue to deliver on that value, we'll find a way to capture enough to pay the rent. You know, it's just so valuable to the customer that, um, you know, whether it's through third-party financing or on our balance sheet or income share agreements or whatever, that's just too much value creation out of thin air, literally out of just putting people in a room together to not be able to find a way to finance it. So we always just bias towards that, just continue to deliver value, increase the amount of value we can deliver to students. Uh, If we do that, we'll always be fine. How do you ensure that value will always be there? Because part of the field that Flatiron currently teaches in, right? It's evolving fast, right? There's constantly new technologies, new languages being deployed. I guess, how does Flatiron, do you have people assigned to it? Do you have teams assigned to it? How do you guys stay abreast of what is valuable and important and new so that you don't, because I mean, if you taught every single language that came out or every single program that existed, I think you would, you know, blow heads. Like, yeah, I don't know if you would sure. get, I don't know if you'd actually no. get what you wanted from status. Someone would get what they wanted out of it. So how do you like, I guess, make those bets so that Flatiron can continue to provide that such a great education? Yeah. I mean, you got to abstract the level up, right? It's not about teaching you a very specific language. It's about teaching you how to think, right? So for example, you know, if you want to go into finance, knowing how to use the spreadsheet is really important. Now, if somebody just taught you how to use Microsoft Excel, but you couldn't translate that to Airtable or Google Sheets or anything else, that would probably be problematic. But if you learned how to use a spreadsheet, you can use a spread, you know, any spreadsheet, right? Um, Software engineering, data science, you know, user experience design, all these things are similar, right? If you know how to think in this way, of course, you do need a baseline of technologies that you're confident in such that you can go in and get the job. But I think over 60% of our students accept jobs, you know, for example, on the software engineering side, using technologies or languages that we didn't teach because we teach oh. them how to think and they can pick up the languages. Obviously, we have a, you know, we have a very competent and teaching team and, and we try to connect lessons from the career services team to the educational side of the business so that there's a feedback loop. Um, ultimately, I think, you know, the real answer to your question is really is more structural, which is, you know, how do you make sure the organization can continue to evolve, right? When 
you're growing and you're trying, you know, all, all these incentives and you, uh, you're trying to hit revenue targets. How do you build an organization such that you're continuing to bias towards quality as opposed to making short-term decisions? And for us, you know, we've tried to essentially build that into our DNA in two ways, transparency and accountability. So transparency means that we, like I said, we release independently audited outcomes reports every year for every student who's graduated from Flatiron School. And so one way or another, the whole world is going to see all of our data. How many students graduated? What jobs did they get? What were the average salaries? How long did it take them to get jobs, et cetera? And so if those numbers don't look too good, it's not going to be good for business. Uh, and the other one is accountability. We hold ourselves accountable to our students, whether it's through an income share agreement, which means you don't pay us any tuition until after you get a job. Uh, if you don't get a job in six months, we'll give you a full refund. Between those two things, transparency and accountability, that means that if we're not doing right by our students, we don't even have a business, right? Now, my view is that if you introduce those two things into higher education more broadly, you fix everything. That's what's lacking. Um, but we've built those so deeply into our DNA that we essentially can't survive unless we maintain them. No, I love it. The uh, openness of your, your business and then holding yourself to the higher standard. I can see it. It's going to hopefully keep flat iron at the top. This is where we always want to learn a little bit more about you just on a personal level. Our audience is just a mix of C-suite as well as decision makers across multiple industries. When the day's over at Flatiron, what's Adam Enbar doing? So I have a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a four-month-old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I are know they, what you're going through. Are they packed as closely tight together? <laughs> no, we spread them out a little further. Dobby. You, <laughs> yeah. you, went, you went all in, bro. <laughs> all in. So that's pretty much what I'm doing. I, um, I try to leave. I, I live close to the office. I try to leave by 6.30 or so every night because I, um, I really like putting my kids to bed, uh, you know, doing bath time, reading them a story. Uh, that's my thing. <laughs> um, nice. So I'm usually back online after that. I try to be very deliberate about carving out time for uh, my kids and my family. It doesn't leave much time. You know, if you asked me four years ago, my answer would have revolved somewhere around snowboarding or something. But these days, it's just, it's all about family. <laughs> it's amazing how many founders we meet and operators, CEOs, such as yourself, that have boarding as their hobby. Like, so, you know, I guess the most famous snowboarders might be like Toby Luke from uh, Shopify. You're a boarder. We've talked to a couple others that are the same. So, Hey, listen, as they get, as the kids get a little older, you'll be back on the slopes. Okay. That's what they say. <laughs> now um, one final, one final question we got to ask, will your kids go to Flatiron? If they're passionate about it, hopefully there they can get them. <laughs> if there's anything out of being, I've learned from being in the education industry for seven years. Uh, if there's anything I learned about education, uh, it's two things. One, great teachers matter. Great teachers over everything. Just focus on having great teachers. Uh, you'll never replace them with technology. You shouldn't try. Um, and then two is if you're trying to get your kids to be good at stuff, just try to get your kids to like learning. <laughs> That's it. We embrace the same philosophy. Do I like snakes? No, but I have a lot of snake books because <laughs> my son likes reading about snakes. <laughs> exactly. Just encourage, encourage curiosity. That's it. If, they, if they're into coding, great. You know, let them be into coding. If they don't want to look at a terminal, then don't force them to. Because uh, <laughs> the worst thing for a kid is to see learning as a chore. You know? 
That's so, absolutely um, true. Yeah. Adam, thanks for joining us on Missing Daily. Adam Enbar, Flatiron School. Check it out. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.